Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Osband. Our daf of the day, Moed Katan, daf tet, page nine. As you can hear, I am under the weather. I apologize for that. Um, we have a really interesting daf ahead. Um, the Gemara here on Amud Aleph starts talking about how when Shlomo Amalek, when King Solomon built the Beit HaMikdash, they had a huge festival, a huge, huge feast, where everybody joined together, to, to feast, to celebrate the fact that the Beit HaMikdash was built. And they came together, you know, in this time, it says they feasted for seven days and seven, seven days and seven days, which were 14 days. And this is a citation from the book of Malachim, Kings. And then there's some discussion here in the Gemara about maybe really they should have waited until the time of Sukkot, which is its own festival, which brings us back to the question of mixing smachot, right? Joining one rejoicing with another rejoicing. What happens, though, is Sigmar goes on to discuss it um, in, I think, a way that is a little bit more radical. The the whole Akamatam Beit HaMikdash, right, the whole festival took place several weeks before Sukkot. And what happens is discussion of how the Jewish people did not have Yom Kippur that year, which is just a crazy sentence to say out loud, a crazy phrase to reason, read in the Gemara. We'll do that now. I'm a Rebbe Parnach. That same year, they did not do Yom Kippur. They did not observe Yom Kippur. So then, and then afterwards, right, then they were worried and they said, what if the enemies of the Jewish people, which we've talked about this before, is really a euphemism to mean B'nai Israel themselves when they're not behaving properly, what if they're now going to be um, in trouble? They're, they're going to be obligated, right, for transgressing, eating on Yom Kippur, which we know is, you know, generally understood to be punishable by karet, the worst punishment. So a bat kol comes for, forth and says, all of you are designated for life in the olam haba, in the world to come. And meaning, you're fine. Eating on Yom Kippur that year was really not a problem, which again is mind-boggling. So the Gemara wants to know, how did they ever even figure out that they were allowed to eat on Yom Kippur? How could you understand it in light of this batkol? Amru kavachomer. They say it's a logical inference. How so? mishkan In the same way that the Akamat mishkan, when they dedicated the tabernacle, which was not a permanent kedusha. It didn't last forever. You know, practically speaking, it moved on. We end up with a Beit HaMikdash instead. And likewise, the korban of an individual, both of these would override prohibitions of Shabbat, the Isor Skila Mikdash, the kedusha. Oh, so, I'm sorry, which is, a, all of that has a prohibition of Skila, stoning, which is also a very severe punishment. When we're talking here about the Beit HaMikdash, which has an eternal lasting of its sanctity, and also a korban, an offering that is made by the Tzibor, by the whole community on behalf of the sanctification of the Beit HaMikdash, so I have actually perhaps misspoken in calling karet the worst punishment, because here it's the worst punishment that is not in the hands of a Beit Din. Really, but then once you've got skila, skila stoning, or any of the other um, mitot beitid, is technically worse, a harsher punishment 
than kairate, which is a death at the hands of God, as opposed to the hands of man. So when you put all those factors together, meaning the fact that it's a kedushat olam, an eternal sanctity, and the fact that it's a korban tzibor, a communal offering, and the fact that it's anush kareit, that the punishment is kareit as opposed to skila, so that even though, you know, even though it's Yom Kippur, it should still be, it should still stand to reason that it was permissible to break Yom Kippur for the sake of these other motivations as compared to the fact of what we know can um, can push off Shabbat. Which is good logic, but it still feels, you know, we all relate, I think, we relate to Yom Kippur as so, well, both holy and also sacrosanct, meaning the kind of thing that we're never going to mess with, right? So, on the one hand, the logic stands, and of course, they have the bakul to confirm it. But on the other hand, it still feels like, really? Really, they ate a Yom Kippur because they were establishing the Beit HaMikdash? Couldn't they have set up the Beit HaMikdash so that the days of feasting would not overlap with the Yom Kippur? Shouldn't somebody on the planning commission have figured that out a little bit better? So I don't, I don't fully understand the history of it. I do understand the Gemara's explanation of it. It's pretty amazing that the Gemara sort of wanted to, um, I guess in a way, like recount this and really explain that it's true. Because I agree with you, Anne. It's like one of these things that you're like, the logic makes sense, but I can't believe we actually did it and went there. <laughs> right, exactly. They went there. I feel like that's the modern day expression. Perfect. Right. So, uh, you know, that's it. And, and this whole dap is very, very rich. I, I, I'm going to move on to, you know, the piece where it talks about that, you know, B'nai Sarah actually felt bad in a way that they did it. And so I think that also brings up an interesting notion here, which is sometimes something can be sort of halakhically permissible, but we don't always feel good doing it in the moment, right? Like, you know, you ask a question, you're told like, oh, it's totally fine. But you're like, really? It's fine? How could it be fine? And even if it's explained to you. And so you sort of have this bot call that comes out as it explains in the story, right? And says, you know, Yatsa Bakol Amra Lahem, right? All of you are designated for life in the world to come. And I think it's also interesting that it's a backhole that does that because again, a backhole is usually a, a means, a narrative means, or it's a narrative ploy when the other world wants to tell us something, a truth about this world, about our physical world that we could not know as humans from our regular observation of the world. So the fact that there's a backhole in the story tells us or sort of is acknowledging how unusual it was that this actually was the case. Um, I think the fact that there's a batkol always will make it unusual. The fact that they need the batkol, I think, is interesting. And the Gemara goes on to say, like, well, if they had this logic, why why were they worried, right? Meaning, so the batkol, I feel like, in this case, maybe it really is just the the official stamp of approval because nobody was going to really feel comfortable until right, exactly. they got such Exactly. It needed the back. So I just want to read sort of their whole explanation. They they ask a good question about this issue of the of the back call, right? Because it is sort of like, did a back call, the back call we see in so many scenarios, but there's no record of the back call. And this is a narrative or a story that we actually have a record of in Nach itself. So the Gemara here says, and then it asks the obvious question, how do we know that they were forgiven? So Tachlifa teaches, right? And it's interesting. It's a, it's a sage that we don't really know too much about. And here he quotes a pasuk from Malachim Aleph, Perk Pasuk, um, uh, chapter 8, verse 66, Samachvab. 
uh, where it says the following. This is sort of the end of the dedication of the Beit HaMikdash. On the eighth day, he, meaning Shlomo, sends the people away. They, they leave, they, you know, the festivities are over. They bless the king and they went to their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had done for David, his servant, and for Israel, his people. So now it goes on to explain each of these clauses. So they went to their tents and they found that all their wives were basically in a, in a state of, of purity. Right, that they had basically enjoyed the splendor of the shechina being present. That somehow, when they there was an encounter with the divine during this uh, during this celebration, so this goes back to the ohaleim piece that each and every one of them, right, of their wives conceived a male child. Okay, again, that's we could. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, alkol hatova, um, and then it says alkol hatova. She got stabak kol v'amralahem kulchem muzmanim lachayolam haba. What was the tova that this bat kol came out? I mean, this is really an incredible midrash. Like this is real midrash, right? Like in other words, there's nothing in the text itself that indicates that any of this actually happened. Um, but this is his read because it, look, I think what's unusual about the pasuk is sort of all the details in it, right? They blessed the king. They went to their tents joyful. They were glad of heart for all the goodness. So it needs to sort of explain what were all the different levels or what were the multitude of things that the people were thankful for. Um, but it's this teaching, though, sort of inserts things that, um, you know, it's really not apparent from the, from the text at all. And then they get to the next interesting part, which is La David Abdul Yisrael Amo. Right, so it says for David his servant and for Israel's people. So it makes sense that he, you know, that that God, you know, that talks about what Hashem did for Israel's people because what did he do? He forgave them for the fact that they didn't keep Yom Kippur the way that you normally are supposed to. That they were forgiven for that, right? That they ate on Yom Kippur. But what about David? Why is David Hamel specifically mentioned here? Amar Rav Yehuda, Amar Rav. Right, So this is a very, very interesting story that they add, right? Here we have Shlomo, right? He's about to bring the Aaron into the temple. Like in other words, sort of the one of the final things that has to happen, right? To sort of actually, you know, the, the, I would say the physical manifestation of the Shekhinah being in the Beit HaMikdash, Shlomo's about to bring that Aaron into the Beit HaMikdash. And what happens? Davku Sharim Zeh Right, the gates are clung together. Right, look at the language here, Davku, and they won't open. Amar Shlomo, So Shlomo then says twenty-four songs. Right, twenty-four songs, and he's still not answered. Right, then he quotes his famous Shlomo sings his famous Parakim Tehillim, chapter twenty-four, right, verse seven, uh, and again, still his He's still not answered. Then he quotes a different pasuk. And what this pasuk is from Devarim Bet. Sorry, not Devarim. Devar Hayam and Bet. Excuse me. Devar Hayam and Bet. Chapter 6, verses 41 and 42, where it says, Hashem, do not turn away the face of your anointed. Remember the faithful love of David, your servant. Right away, he's answered. 
Kishulei Kadera. At that moment, the faces of David's enemies turned dark like the bottom of a pot, of a charred pot. And everybody knew that he was forgiven for that sin. Now, whenever it says Oto Avon, and this is not the only Gemara where this appears, there's a very, very big effort made by the Gemara in many places to sort of say that the sin of David and Bathsheba was not really a sin. Um, and, um, you know, I... I I, I'm not always sure what to do with those gemaras because it is a sin when you read the shot of that. Um, and I think it's one that, that needs to, you know, actually be dealt with. Um, but what I think is happening here is that sort of like this statement of Rav Yehuda and this whole story about B'nai Yisrael, you know, that they had to be forgiven for eating on Yom Kippur and that David HaMelch for the Beit HaMikdash sort of fully function. I think there has to be an acknowledgement in a way that the human condition is one to sin and that the purpose of the Beit HaMikdash is that even when we sin, we still can have contact with God and it's there for us to work on our relationship with God. That even when we, um, you know, even when we uh, sin, we still have that opportunity to interact with God. And so I think the, that's the point is that the way that the gates open is when Shlomo acknowledges the history of sin, right? If you just come and you just praise God, it's almost like in a way you're pretending everything about the relationship is always okay. But once the sin is acknowledged, and that was the big sin of David, right? And that's the sin that eventually actually leads to Shlomo being born, right? It's through that acknowledgement, then the Beit HaMikdash can sort of open and serve its actual purpose. And so I think that's why it's so powerful, the story about B'nai Yisrael you know, eating on Yom Kippur, that sort of like in their moment of greatest celebration where they can finally worship God as they were meant to worship, there is still this fear in the back of their head. I didn't do it the right way, right? Like in order to do it, I had to do something that I was told I was never allowed to do, which was eat on Yom Kippur. And so I think this really describes sort of a constant tension that we as humans feel in our relationship with God. At least to me, that's what this page is talking about. Like it's acknowledging that like sin is just part of how we worship. I think that's a really lovely way to put it. I think also this question of when do we have sin? When when does a sin, when does something that looks like a sin that you know smells like a sin, sounds like a sin, shouldn't that be a sin? And I think for the most part, I think that the answer is going to be yes. And sometimes there's forgiveness and sometimes there's accountability and sometimes there's further... I think that's the, just going back to the point you raised of David and Bathsheba, I think that's getting that particular story has been getting a lot more airtime of late because of the exactly this question of how much do Chazal say, you know, elsewhere, not here, that David needs to do tshuva or that he did do tshuva, never sinned at all, right? Meaning, there's so many different ways to interpret something which, in the text of the of the Bible, is very clear, where David says Chatati Lashem, I sinned against God. It seems very clear. So I feel like. In this story, on this daf, we see really all the complexity because, oh my goodness, they ate on him. We have all these, you know, this whole long list of things that are totally wrong that end up being, you know, I don't want to say it's fine, but it ends up being excusable or explainable in the particular context. So that doesn't mean we should set out to sin. Yeah, I actually want to clarify something I said. I said before that there are many Gemaras that try to explain that David 
did not do a sin. And I actually think that was incorrect for me to say, because I actually think this Gemara very much is acknowledging the sin. It calls it Oto Avon. So I think it's more, this is a Gemara trying to explain that he ultimately was forgiven for it. But that's very different than some of the Gemaras where it says he did not sin at all. So I, you know, we'll come to those, we'll come to those Dapim in future years. But sort of as we're learning this through and discussing it through, uh, my formulation of how I said that I don't think was actually the right one. This Gemara is acknowledging it. So it's sort of acknowledging sort of the biggest communal sin, quote unquote, right? Eating on Yom Kippur and acknowledging, let's say, the greatest personal sin that a Jewish leader ever committed. That's our tough discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think about this stuff. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn.